This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled Friday that parents cannot stay anonymous in their suit over Madison School District gender identity politics, reports the AP. The parents sued over a 2018 district policy calling for school staff to refer to students by their preferred names and pronouns and not to disclose students' gender identities to anyone, including parents. In the 4-3 ruling, the court ordered the parents' names to be revealed to opposing attorneys, though they do not have to be named to the district or the public. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, representing the parents, claimed that revealing the parents' names would open them up to harassment and retaliation. That was just one of three rulings made by the court on Friday. We have more on those other two rulings later in the show. Assembly Majority Leader Jim Steinecke stated he will be resigning his seat in two weeks, reports the Cap Times. Steinecke previously announced in January that he would not be seeking re-election. In his statement, Steinecke said that with legislative sessions wrapping up, now is the time to resign. He said he would be moving on to pursue interests in the private sector, though he did not elaborate further on those plans. As Assembly Majority Leader, Steinecke served on the Joint Committee on Employment Relations and the Joint Legislative Council and co-chaired the 2021 Task Force on Racial Disparities. Steinecke's decision comes as nearly two dozen other lawmakers have announced their decision to leave the legislature. State conservatives are looking at ways to block out-of-state abortions and add additional restrictions in the state, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Peter Breen, vice president and senior counsel for the conservative Thomas More Society, stated he doesn't anticipate any major legislative proposals in Wisconsin until the Republican-led legislature returns for session next year. But, Breen said, the law firm's agenda includes the measures of suing individuals who help residents terminate a pregnancy in another state and those seeking bans to restrict the use of abortion pills. These potential new laws would go into effect after November's gubernatorial election, where Tony Evers, who vowed to veto any proposed abortion restrictions, will face anti-abortion candidates, including business owner Tim Michaels and former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. Rebecca Blank, former University of Wisconsin-Madison Chancellor, is stepping down as president of Northwestern University after she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer, reports the Wisconsin Public Radio. Blank left UW-Madison in May to become president at Northwestern University this summer. Blank and her husband plan to return to Wisconsin, where she will undergo treatment. The Wisconsin State Journal reports Dane County's case against PFAS manufacturers has been moved to federal court. The lawsuits filed in state court are against companies including DuPont and 3M regarding accusations that they have been creating and selling products containing toxic contents that would not break down once released into the environment. The case was transferred to federal court by ChemGuard and its parent company Tyco Fire Products, where hundreds of other cases have been filed from around the country, including in La Crosse. And now on to today's top stories. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has upheld the authority of Public Health of Madison and Dane County to issue public health orders. 
The decision comes despite a challenge to this power of the health agency following the emergency orders they enacted as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. WORT reporter Reed Kamai has more. Last Friday, the Wisconsin Supreme Court voted 4-3 to to uphold the authority of local public health departments to institute public health orders such as those made during the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifically, the state's high court ruled that Public Health of Madison and Dane County, or PHMDC, was justified in issuing orders such as mask mandates and indoor gathering limits. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court found that PHMDC could do so without the oversight of local governments. This case was taken up following a lawsuit filed by two Dane County residents along with A Leap Above Dance, a dance studio located in the town of Oregon. The dance studio joined the other plaintiffs after fines were levied against them for failing to comply with health orders during a December 2020 performance of The Nutcracker. The original lawsuit sought a temporary injunction of the health orders, but this was dismissed by Dane County Circuit Court Judge Jacob B. Frost, citing that state law does not preempt local bodies' health orders from being enforced. In his concurring opinion, Justice Brian Hagedorn cites past occasions, some dating back to Wisconsin's early days, in which local health officials have issued orders. He expresses his view that the dissenting opinion focuses on criticizing the county for finding a leap above dance for its various infringements of the health orders. He notes that the case before the court focused on whether public health of Madison and Dane County could enact and enforce any orders. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi welcomed the decision. It means that our public health department can continue to respond to public health emergencies in a deliberate, science-based fashion, um, do what they need to do when they need to do it, um, and, you know, be able to do it, you know, based on what is medically in the best interest of the public. He added that other counties may have pursued similar measures, if not for legal threats. And, you know, we're really glad it went this way. I think, you know, more communities um, around the state probably would have enacted um, health orders themselves who didn't, but a lot of them were afraid of getting sued like we did. Um, But, you know, our folks stuck with it and said, you know, we have the right to do this and this is what's in the best interest of the public and, you know, moved forward with it. The dissenting opinion was written by Justice Rebecca Bradley. She argues that the county could not delegate this authority to PHMDC. With regards to the director of PHMDC, Janelle Heinrich, Justice Bradley described Heinrich's issuance of health orders as tyranny and the orders themselves as oppressive. She concluded the argument by quoting the lyrics of the Coldplay song Viva la Vida, saying that, quote, seas would rise when Heinrich gave the word, and that without constitutional foundation, Heinrich's authority, quote, stands upon pillars of salt and pillars of sand. Lawyers from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty provided counsel for the plaintiffs. They could not be reached for comment. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. The state Supreme Court had a busy day on Friday. Among their high-profile cases was a ruling that absentee ballot drop boxes are not allowed under Wisconsin law. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. On Friday, the state Supreme Court ruled that drop boxes for absentee ballots are illegal. The boxes were used prominently during the 2020 presidential election, particularly here in Madison, which installed 14 drop boxes across the city. The court, which ruled 4-3 on party lines, said that all absentee ballots must be returned to municipal clerks either in person or by mail, and that drop boxes are not stipulated under Wisconsin statute. 
The case was brought forward by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, on behalf of two Milwaukee area voters. Also included in Friday's ruling is conditions deciding who specifically can hand in absentee ballots. Under the ruling, if the ballot is handed over to a municipal clerk, the voter themselves must be the one to hand over the ballot. Scott Thompson is part of the staff counsel at Law Forward, the nonprofit law firm representing voting advocates in the case. He says that the ruling gets murky when it comes to who can place a ballot in the mailbox. So here, the court punted on one of the questions. The court could not find a majority to affirm the lower court's ruling on the mailing question. Um, So it specifically left open the question about whether or not someone can place someone else's ballot into the mail. Um, But it did give us an answer on bringing it back to the clerk's office. The court determined that in Wisconsin only uh, the actual voter can return their own ballot. So no longer can we help out our friends, our neighbors, and our family members by just bringing our ballots back to the clerk's office at a convenient time, um, this is now a new step that will make it harder for people uh, to bring their ballots back. Thompson then says that while the ruling made rules about who can return a ballot to clerks, the court used very specific wording in their opinion. Now, it's also really important for folks to understand what this case did not do in that specific absentee ballot return question. And what it did not do is it did not remove, alter, or in any way contradict federal protections for voters with disabilities. Like I said, a lot of people use someone else to return their ballots. Um, because they need to. And those voters should still enjoy the very strong protections of federal law. And that means that if they need an accommodation to get their ballot back to the municipal clerk's office, uh, they have a federal right to that accommodation. And so clerks across the state are still going to have to honor that. Barbara Beckett with Disability Rights Wisconsin agrees with Thompson. She says that for disabled folks here in Wisconsin, they do still have options in terms of having their ballot delivered to their polling place, our recommendation is that they contact their municipal clerk and they say to their clerk, I'm a person with a disability. For that reason, I need assistance with having my ballot delivered. I've asked a person of my choice to deliver my ballot and I'm requesting a disability-related accommodation because I I need that assistance because of my disability. Beckett says that under federal law, disabled voters are still able to hand their ballot to a person of their own choosing to deliver their ballot to the mailbox. Thompson also states that the ruling itself includes dangerous language outside the realm of just absentee voting. In Judge Rebecca Bradley's concurring opinion, she said that, in light of this ruling, she encourages the court to revisit the results of the 2020 presidential election. Make no mistake, that was the goal of this lawsuit. They wanted to make it harder for people to vote, and they wanted to give legs to this big lie that they've been uh, touting for years. And this decision is, is clearly, clearly, clearly aligned with that entire effort. In her decision, Bradley quoted Kanye West saying no one man should have all that power when it comes to deciding election procedures.
with the ruling former President Donald Trump is now calling for the 2020 presidential election to be reexamined here in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Trump took to Truth Social, his social media platform, calling for votes cast via the drop boxes to be nullified. Representatives from Will could not be reached for comment by airtime. Will President Rick Eisenberg said in a statement that Wisconsin voters can have confidence that state law now has the final word on how Wisconsin elections are conducted. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. If you've driven on the Beltline during rush hour, you know things can get a little more than backed up. But starting Wednesday, new flex lanes are looking to help alleviate some of the rush hour congestion. But what are flex lanes and how do they work? WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Randy Hoyt and John Steiner with the State Department of Transportation to find out how the temporary lanes will help ease traffic congestion. So just sort of starting things off here, looking at we're right here next to the Beltline. What is a flex lane? You know, I think a lot of people hear the word flex lane. They don't really know what that is. What is a flex lane? Well, the flex lane is it's a term um, what we have in Wisconsin is what we coined the be there. What it actually is is a hard shoulder running in that as we have it out there nationally, or it could be a um, a part time shoulder use as we have you see nationally. So we termed it flex lane in Wisconsin. It's not used everywhere in the nation, but it is a lane that we use to kind of help with congestion and reliability of the system during certain times and peak periods of the times for the days for the travel. And then, so you mentioned a couple other states have that. What other states have things like a flex lane and how have those sort of worked out for them? Uh, they've worked out well for the other states. There are 17 different states that have it in some form or fashion uh, as to how they wanted to manage their traffic. The ones we've worked recently with have been the state of Ohio, Michigan, and Colorado, the ones we've been looking at to kind of fashion the same type of traffic that we have here on the Beltline that they have for their systems that they implemented a few years ago. And then what sort of, what's the point of the flex lane? What does it uh, aim to do for the Beltline there? Uh, the flex lane is really set there. We're looking at congestion during the peak periods in the morning and afternoon. We have a lot of congestion. As you notice in the Beltline, we want to reduce the congestion but we also want to uh, improve the reliability for travelers so they know they can get from point A to point B in a certain amount of time so they, they can predict a little bit better what their travel time will be to get to those points. Also, safety is also a top priority for Wisconsin at any time we do an improvement project like this. And then so looking at sort of, you know, you said the it will mostly be open during rush hour sort of in the morning and the afternoon. Uh, would it be open any other time uh, of the day? Yeah, so we have a good question. So we anticipate the lane to be open for special events in the Madison area, um, horse fair, um, the Dane County Fair are some of the special uh, special events that will open it. Um, potentially some Badger football games, um, but we do have staffing for it uh, Monday through Friday um, from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. So special events, uh, we call in staff to work those uh, in advance. And then sort of looking at it, so you have cameras set up all around the Beltline here to know when to open it and when to close it. Can you sort of walk me through a little bit how that works? Sure. 
You bet. So there are almost 40 cameras that were installed as part of this project. And in order to open the lane, we have to ensure that it's clear of any hazards. So that includes vehicle, includes debris, anything else that could be a hazard to the, to the traveling public. So the opening sequence begins with a camera sweep. So the flex lane specialists in the traffic management center in Milwaukee go through a camera tour, both eastbound and westbound, and look for debris in the lane or broken down vehicles. At the same time, the Dane County Sheriff's Office freeway service team is conducting a sweep as well. And they go in opposite directions of each other. So you have both a camera sweep and a physical sweep by the Dane County Sheriff. So that's the first step. And then after the after the lane is deemed to be clear, then we then from the from Milwaukee, we will turn the 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 lane control signs from a red X to a green arrow. And so you mentioned special events and then rush hour in the morning. Just as I was sort of driving in here, actually, we're standing right next to the Beltline. I actually ran into some congestion. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it was, if it was a car accident or anything like that. Would the flex lane, would you potentially open up the flex lane for something like that? Would would that factor into it, like during the middle of the day sort of congestion? In We're opening the flex lane for recurrent congestion. So there are, there are non-recurring congestion events that may be due to an accident or any number of things, but we're addressing recurring congestion. And then, so sort of looking at it, so this lane will only be open at certain times. What's the benefit of having a flex lane as opposed to just adding another lane to the belt line? How, how would that sort of uh, address traffic congestion? Well, right now that's a current other study that's going right now. It's called the Pell study. It is the uh, environmental leakage study that they're going through. That has not been approved to move further into that. Right now, the flex lane is just what we call a short-term, uh, what do call it, solution or problem fixture to kind of help the congestion that we're experiencing right now. But it is certainly not the long-term project we're looking at for Beltline. And then just, so just to clarify, this will be open during weekdays, correct? Why not, why not have it open during the weekends as well uh, and have people monitoring it? Well, the, the traffic volumes in the Beltline are diminished a lot during, during the weekends, and it's not as predictable. So like I mentioned before, this is addressing recurrent congestion, which another word for recurrent would be predictable. And we know that in the AM and PM rush hours, there is congestion on the belt line and the flex lanes built to add more capacity during those times. And then what sort of steps are being taken to keep people from driving in the flex lane outside of the times that it is open, say, say 10 o'clock at night or something. And, you know, there's a car that just wants to speed around everyone. Is there anything being done to sort of track down on that well everything comes back to once we put anything in uh you have to follow the law and follow the signs and that that really comes down to the law enforcement agencies that we have we brief them work with them on what the signs mean up above so when it says you can only travel in the flex lane when you have a green arrow if the green arrow is not showing and people are driving in that that is a ticketable offense as they see it so it the sign does cover that and it makes it lawful to ticket them if they're in there when they're not supposed to be and then, so let's talk about the signs a little bit. How, what are the three, I know there's three different ways uh, to indicate the current status of the flex lane. Uh, what can you sort of tell me about those? I'll go through. So uh, the condition that people will see in most hours of the day will be a red X, indicating you can't travel in the lane. When it is in operation, um, that message, or the I guess the graphic on the lane control sign will be a green arrow pointed down. Um, if there is an incident, so um, the other condition would be a yellow X. So if there is an incident detected in the lane, 
um, the, the flex lane specialist will close that portion of the lane and the drivers will see uh, a green X or sorry, green arrows, and then we'll see a yellow X. And the yellow X means you need to merge to the right. And so just sort of just sort of finishing things off here, you mentioned uh, some of the other states, you said Ohio and Michigan. How have that, how have those flex lanes, I know they're not called flex lanes there, but how has that sort of uh, worked to reduce congestion? Have, have there been any studies to show or anything that shows that there's been any reduced congestion with that? Uh, they, I believe they do have some reports out there that we were looking at. Um, when we've been talking with them and some of the people during the study, when we determined the flex lane would be a beneficial coming here to the Beltline, um, everything seemed really positive from them. There's always a few people, like you said, that may travel within that flex lane or travel in that part-time shoulder use and that as they go through it. But for the most part, they've deemed it very successful for what they wanted to accomplish. All right, and uh, Randy and John, I think that's pretty much all I have. Do you have just any final thoughts of anything you'd like to share with me here? Uh, no, um, we just want everyone, you know, the Beltline is still 55 miles per hour. The flex lane will stay 55. We, if everybody obeys the speed and obeys the laws and that, uh, we feel it'll be a great benefit and uh, improve the safety and for everybody to get through the thing for congestion and reliability, quite a bit better and stuff than what you've seen in the past. So we just want everyone to drive safe and obey the law and the speed limit as they're out there still. I've been talking with Randy Hoyt and John Steiner with the Wisconsin Department of Transportation about the flex lanes that will be opening up on the Beltline here in Madison this Wednesday. Uh, Randy, John, thank you guys so much for talking with me. Thank, thank you. you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thank you for joining us. Dane County has a big meeting on those forever chemicals known as PFAS, and the city of Madison is rolling out its hybrid meeting format. ForwardLookout.com's Brenda Conkle and WORT Dylan, Dylan's, Dylan Brogan have that and more on this week's preview of what's happening in local government. It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. If you notice I sound a little different, it's because this is a Zoom-to-Zoom -Zoom recording, which is uh, just the way of the world to keep people safe, right? Happens occasionally, but I'll be back in the studio next week, and hopefully Brenda will be in the studio, you know, Whenever this pandemic lap, lets up. <laughs> Not going to uh, predict when. <laughs> uh, and interesting, you know, one big change we should talk about is uh, hybrid meetings are in vogue. They they took them a while to figure it out, but Dane County and the city are both have it both implemented, right? And so what does that mean? Um, yeah, so some people will actually go to the room where the meetings used to be and ha hold a meeting there, and then other people can also attend via Zoom. And so both the city and the county have uh, their systems that have been set up to do that. Not all committees have returned, but some of them are starting to do so. so and, you know, I covered this about alders and city staff, whether they should have to appear in person or virtual. But, uh, you know, one thing that was seemed clear, despite the debate, was the public should always have the option to, to zoom in to give public input. So you think that's a positive development? Oh, absolutely. Prior to the pandemic, 
we have been sort of pushing for that through the the TFOGS committee, you know, saying, hey, why do people have to come all the way down to City Hall? Why do they have to park? Why do they have to sit there for hours and hours and hours when they could be, you know, sitting in the comfort of their home, you know, attending to things they need to do around the house until their item comes up on the agenda. And um, at the time, they said, absolutely not. They could never figure it out. Um, But, you know, COVID has changed everything. And uh, we all got used to using Zoom. And now um, they have figured out how to have these hybrid meetings. So I think that's going to lead to a lot of increased participation by the public. So I think that's a good change. Yeah, me too. I think they everyone should have that option. And it it makes sense, right? If uh, Yes, especially when a lot of effort was put into the, the infrastructure just during the height of the pandemic. We might as well use it. All right, let's get to it. Dane County today uh, happening right now is the city, the city county homeless issues committee. Tell us about what's going on with that. So they do have some updates, you know, COVID-19, men's shelter, what's going on at the hotels. So they have a bunch of those types of updates. But then uh, the big item there is that we are um, looking to do a new community plan to prevent and end homelessness. Um, the last plan was done back in 2015, 2016. Uh, a lot has changed since then. And so um, time to do a new new plan. Um, and so they're looking for a consultant who will come in and help us do that plan. Both the city and the county have given $75,000 towards that plan. Tuesday at 5.30, the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, it's a hybrid meeting. And so they'll be re- they'll be meeting in room uh, 357 at the city county building, but also virtually. Uh, what is PP&J talking about? Yeah, they had uh, just three items on their agenda. It'll probably be pretty quick. Uh, there's a fund transfer, um, but they do have a, an item on their agenda that's funding for the voluntary gun buyback program um, for the Dane County Sheriff's Office. So that may be of interest to some, um, but everything else is pretty routine. So Thursday, we have a hybrid meeting of the Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee. They're meeting at 5 p.m. virtually and at 5201 Fen Oak Drive. So PFOFs, important meeting for that, it looks like. It is. It's the only item on their agenda. I'm, I'm guessing that they are expecting uh, quite a few people to um, have some some thoughts and to be attending to find out the, the information that's going to be provided at the meeting. So I would expect a large participation and a large uh, audience for that meeting. Moving on to the city of Madison, uh, the finance committee is meeting night. They're still virtual. I think that, that might be one where they continue to meet virtually. Virtual uh, finance committee meeting. Yeah, it was a relatively short agenda for the finance committee, yeah. um, but it is a lot of uh, development and TIF is is usually, you know, the thing. They will be talking about um, the transportation positions that they have, um, that they're going to be making some changes to, sort of a little bit of restructuring. Um, then they have two TIF districts approving an amendment to the boundary for Capitol Square West, and then uh, creation of a project plan and boundary for the state, state and lake TIF, which is a new one. And other, um, otherwise on their agenda is also um, spending money for the architecture and engineering for that project at State uh, Campus Garage. And then later they'll be going into closed session to talk about it as well. So, yeah, um, what does that mean going into closed session to talk about the State Street Campus Garage? That's a, a project, a rather large project that has housing above it. Um, and I have no idea what the co- current controversy is. Um, that's probably why they're going into closed session. Probably something to do with negotiations about how that development is going in, in the city and private partnership there. Okay, so tough talk with the private developer, maybe. Possibly, yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> 
Common Council meeting at uh, six thirty in the city county building. So I think this might be the a virtual the a virtual meeting. Uh, yeah, it's a hybrid meeting. Yeah. Hybrid meeting. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my god, how did I get that wrong after? <laughs> a hybrid meeting, yes, but back in the old council chambers, which they they haven't been since March of 2020. Yeah, it's it's been a while. <laughs> you know, they have a, a pretty uh, routine agenda as well. Lots of alcohol license issues that are coming before them. A couple petitions um, to bring land into the city of Madison, including the Voight land um, that was technically in the town of Blooming Grove. Um, and then they have a bunch of stuff at the end that is um, bringing in properties from the town of Madison. So um, those are some big things that are on the agenda. In addition to that, they do have a bunch of um, items that came out of the TFOGS group, which is making various changes. Most of them have to do with committees and having communities do evaluations of themselves. Um, they are naming the new youth poet laureate for the city of Madison. So um that's of interest um and then they do have some of the tid stuff that we talked about earlier that's at the finance committee that will be voted on at the council meeting as well public safety review committee meets virtually on to wednesday they look like they have an important agenda as well uh, yeah, probably laundry coming Yes, the open records custodian is going to be coming. So uh, some of us who have done open records requests are aware that they are taking an immense amount of time to get any um, open records requests. And so we have this on the agenda to find out what's going on. Do they need more staff? Um, why are they getting so many requests? And, you know, when you get it, when you do do an open records request, it usually says it'll be six to eight weeks before you get any information. So just going to find out what's going on there. The other big thing that is on the agenda is, um, tear gas, mace, and projectile devices, um, or other chemical agents. Again, trying to ban those from use in the city of Madison. Now, this has come before the Public Safety Review Committee in the past, and where did the committee land on that last time it came around? Um, we voted for the ban last time around, um, and I suspect it will probably be the same. This one includes additional things besides just tear gas, um, but we'll, so we'll see. But I'm guessing it will probably like be a projectiles or what else? It, it does say uh, tear gas, mace, impact projectile devices, and other chemical agents. Um, and basically, it is prohibiting both the Madison Police Department and um, mutual aid departments from using them as well. That's going to be an interesting debate because Common Council uh, booted that down last time, despite the they, recommendation. So They did, yes. Okay. We'll see if it's any different. There's different people on the council, so you never know. Go to forwardlookout.com and make sure to check out on a regular basis uh, important meetings and agenda items happening this week. So thank you, Brenda, for keeping us in the know about all that. All right. Hope to see you in the studio next time. You will. Take care, Brenda. All right. Bye. This Thursday marks the 52nd anniversary of the young Lord's successful occupation of Lincoln Hospital in New York City in 1970. The Young Lords were part of a national movement of young Puerto Ricans modeled after the Black Panthers. Feature contributor Harry Richardson on this week's edition of The Past Isn't Past. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time for our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line. 
For the unnamed and unnumbered Who struggle brave and long For the union men and women Standing up and standing strong This Thursday, July 14th, marks the day in 1970 that 150 people, mostly members of the Puerto Rican group, the Young Lords Party, took over the run-down Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx. The Young Lords, whose average age was 17, had modeled themselves after the Black Panther Party. The 12-hour occupation succeeded in getting their main demand a new hospital for the underserved area. Their other demands reflected a well-thought-out analysis of the needs of the largely poor, mostly Puerto Rican and black people of the neighborhood. No cutbacks in services or jobs, door-to-door, preventative care emphasizing tests for lead poisoning, anemia, and tuberculosis, TB, and drug addiction, and a daycare center for patients who have to bring their children to the hospital. Sarah Gruz, health lieutenant for the Young Lord, said the hospital had been taken to release its potential for the benefit of both patients and hospital staff. Lincoln Hospital is only a butcher shop that kills patients and frustrates workers, she said. This is because Lincoln exists under a capitalist system that only works for profit. But even this system had made an effort at scrapping this butcher shop by condemning the building 25 years ago. The New York chapter of the Young Lords had been around for about a year. It was inspired by Chicago gang member turned radical socialist Jose Chacha Jimenez. Jimenez grew up in a changing neighborhood in Chicago, Lincoln Park. He joined the young Puerto Rican gang in his youth for self-protection, the Young Lords. Jimenez was soon in trouble with the law for petty crimes. But in the summer of 1968, he was picked up and convicted of possession of heroin. He was sentenced to 60 days in the Cook County Jail. During this time in jail, he decided to change and dedicated his life to the liberation of his people. He read a book by American Catholic monk Thomas Merton that greatly influenced him. Jimenez had thought about becoming a priest when he was young and was greatly moved by Merton's spiritual journey. When he got out, he helped change the Young Lords into a radical community-based self-help group like the Black Panthers. They soon participated in joint actions to fight gentrification in Lincoln Park. They disrupted meetings of realtors and landlords, created the People's Church and the People's Park, and even occupied buildings to pressure for change. In Chicago, they joined the original Rainbow Coalition, brought together by Panther Chairman Fred Hampton. That group also included the Young Patriots, a group of mostly white Appalachian youth. Soon there were 30 chapters all across the country, across the Puerto Rican diaspora. The first major action in New York was the garbage offensive. East Harlem residents identified uncollected garbage as a major problem. The young lords, joined by the community, began sweeping the streets and stacking up garbage on the corners. However, when the sanitation department continued to ignore the situation, they burned the garbage in the streets, blocking major intersections used by commuters to leave Manhattan for the suburbs. When the police came and tried to arrest people, fighting broke out. Afterwards, the garbage started being picked up regularly. Every weekend, the Young Lord teams with supporters and doctors went door-to-door, testing for TB and lead poisoning. High portions of people in the neighborhood tested positive. After the city refused to station a TB testing truck in East Harlem, the Young Lords seized a truck. As Juan Gonzalez, a founder of the New York Young Lords, recalled years later with a chuckle, Well, we called it liberating the truck and redirecting it where it was needed. Nowadays, Gonzalez carries on his activism with Democracy Now! after many years of investigative journalism at the New York Daily News. With the help of young doctors and healthcare workers, hundreds of people were tested. When the police came to get the truck, community people surrounded the truck and prevented the arrest of the Lords 
and the return of the vehicle. Afterwards, the city started assigning truck coverage to poor communities. These actions drew public attention and forced city officials to allocate resources to deal with the problem of TB and lead poisoning. At the Lincoln Hospital, the Lords, the Panthers, hospital workers, organized as the Health Revolutionary Unity Movement, and community members, organized as the Think Lincoln Community, set up patient worker complaint tables in Lincoln and other hospitals. Hundreds of grievances were recorded, but the hospital administration refused to take action. After a list of demands and mass demonstrations were also ignored, the young lords and community allies occupied the hospital and won their demands. And that is our story for today. For the past of the past, I'm Harry Richardson. The time right now is 6.47, and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. This week brings the final edition of Bridging the Gap, an exploration into Gen Z culture, and we're so sorry to see it go. This week, outgoing feature contributor Teresa Yen looks at one part of the new normal, remote working and working from home. Working from home has been the new norm for the past two years. Many people enjoyed the freedom of working from the comfort of their own homes when the pandemic first started. No more waking up early, calculating commute time, and no more dressing up. Remote working seemed fun at first, but the work and living space boundaries started to blur. Some people were eager to get back into the office to work in person. But remote working has brought about more change in the workforce than expected. What seemed to be a temporary fix has now become the norm. Reports have shown that remote working has brought about positive changes. Even as COVID-19 starts to dwindle, it seems that the remote working mode will stay. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. Surveys have shown that many employees prefer having the flexibility of choosing to either work remotely or work in the office. The McKinsey American Opportunity Survey shows some interesting results regarding this. Out of the respondents that were given the option to work remotely, 87% say they will take up on that offer. That is, a majority of people seem to prefer remote work. While the average shows that most people would like to do remote work, the demographic shows that the opportunity may not be equal. The survey finds that, quote, People in the United States who are younger, more educated, or have higher incomes tend to have more options to work remotely, end quote. Many job seekers take into consideration whether a company offers remote work or flexibility when looking for a job. According to the survey, having flexible working arrangements is one of the top three requirements that people look for when applying for jobs. How have our attitudes towards remote work shifted as the pandemic progresses? For one, concerns about returning to the office have decreased. Pew Research Center's survey showed that the percentage of people who are comfortable with returning to work in person has increased from October of 2020. For those who are still choosing to work from home, their reasoning has shifted. 
The percentage of people who say preference is their top reason for working from home has grown from 60% to 76%. On the other hand, those who cite health concerns as their top concerns have dropped from 57% to 42%. These statistics shows us that workers are less concerned about the virus overall and that it no longer is the main factor that dictates whether they prefer to work remotely or not. What do employers feel about all of this? Most businesses have a back-to-office plan, and many hope to return to the office as soon as possible. However, many companies also acknowledge that remote work has been a success for both their employees and them. PwC's 2021 U.S. Remote Work Survey found that most employers agree that remote work has helped the company continue operation during the pandemic, but most will likely face the question of rethinking office space. With more people choosing a hybrid form of working, expanding office space might not be the best idea. The report also cites that remote working has employees moving away from big cities such as New York and LA and back to their hometowns or somewhere with more affordable housing. But office space will not cease to exist just yet. It will only have a slight change in what its role used to be. PwC's report shows office space will become more of a work relationship building space, especially for new hires and rookie employees who rely on in-person training at the office. Remote working is here to stay, and it's definitely one of the permanent changes that the pandemic brought on that we did not expect. Like many of the temporary fixes we had when we first went into lockdown, we all thought that things would return to the way they were after a few months. But perhaps this shows us that some temporary fixes might be the solution to a better way of doing things that we've been searching for. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. It's summer, so this week fe- this week's feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new action adventure movies. RRR is a great new over-the-top film from India that should be seen with a big crowd on the largest screen available, but it's also streaming. Harry predicts this will be the best action film of the summer. Plus, we hear about the new fun movie Thor: Love and Thunder on the big screen. That was a clip from RRR, an incredible, over-the-top, action-adventure Indian film from veteran writer-director S.S. Rajmali. Rajmali's film was originally in Tulagan, a language spoken primarily in South Indian states, with its own vital regional cinema. They're English subtitles. The movie runs three hours, but doesn't seem like it. This will be one of the best, if not the best, action film of the summer. There's enough here for several movies, lots of action, but there's also an incredible dance-off between our two principal characters, singing, more dancing, and more singing, and action. There's also a very nationalistic theme, and if it was not obvious enough, we get an homage to Indian revolutionary heroes in the closing credits, minus Gandhi. This is also an anti-colonialist film. There are lots of cool CGI special effects. The movie makes clear no animals were harmed 
or indeed used in this film. Well, maybe that horse was real. The film is set in the 1920s Delhi. The title RRR means different things depending on what translated version you see, but the Hindu cut translates as rise, roar, and revolt. It has already broken box office records in India and reportedly is getting a cult following elsewhere, like in the US. The story is fictitious, but our main players are named after real-life revolutionary heroes. It's about Rama, played by Ram Sharan, a determined undercover police officer. Beam, played by Rama Rowe Jr., a.k.a. Jr. N.T.R., the rural revolutionary he is hunting. They are big stars in India, and so are two women, Allah Buddy and Sita, and Shira Sehran as Sarajin, who are sadly underutilized. The opening sets the story in motion, the casual cruelty of the colonizers, portrayed by Ray Stevenson as the regional British governor, Scott Brixton, and his equally icy spouse, Catherine, played by Alison Doody. They buy an indigenous girl, Molly Twinkle Sharma, much to the horror of her parents and their village. Beam is tasked with getting her back and Rahu with stopping him. All in all, a great action-adventure film that ought to be seen on the biggest screen possible with a big audience of appreciative fans. But it was still a lot of fun on Netflix. Next up, an action-adventure superhero movie I've been waiting months to see. Kids, get to popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking, Thor Odinson. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. That was a clip from the trailer for Thor, Love and Thunder, directed and co-written by Taiko Watiti. This is Watiti's second time directing Thor. There are a lot of silly and even inspired scenes, but it doesn't quite measure up to its predecessor, Thor Ragnarok. We still have a fun take on Thor, thanks to Chris Hemsworth, but the story's a little thin. I also miss the great actors from the last film. Anthony Hopkins, Tom Hiddleston, Kate Blanchett, Jeff Goldblum, and Idris Elba, and the self-effacing Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk. But since his character wasn't killed off, he may return, or perhaps get a solo adventure. One can hope. Thor Love and Thunder does give us a great empathetic villain through Christian Bale as Gore. Bale has a great opening scene out in a vast desert, where his character loses his daughter and his faith, but finds his mission to kill all the gods, every last one of them. This eventually leads us back to Thor, but not before we get some amusing narration from Korg Watiti, Thor's rockman sidekick. He tells us Thor may be pretty good at the hero business, but he's also just a lonely guy. Thor misses scientist Jane Foster, Natalie Portman, but she's back wielding Thor's old hammer with a mission of her own. Tessa Thompson also returns, now King Valkyrie, and there's a fun cameo for Russell Crowe as Zeus. All in all, a fun sequel, if not as good as the last film. It also misses that film's truly epic music score. Waititi reportedly has several projects going on at the same time. Hopefully next time, he'll give a little more attention to the script, cast, and the music. As veteran Marvel fans know, stay through the end credits for a good teaser about the next Thor and a good closing scene. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writers this evening were Emily Kaysinger and Madeline Plattenberg. Your reporter was Reed Kamai with Madeline Plattenberg on special assignment. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. And for the final time, Teresa Yen. Thank you for everything, Teresa. 
Ken Brady engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have yourself a great night.